So this morning, in this time of worship, we have celebrated, we have rejoiced in what the Lord has done for us. And when we give him praise and we come together and worship, it brings about a renewal in our spirit and in our hearts. And today I hope that's been your experience. It has been mine. You know that our theme this year at First Baptist Arlington is re. We are looking this year at re-everything <laughs> with uh, the experiences we've been through over the last couple of years as a society. We're hopeful that there is a renewing work of God in our lives as we forge ahead into the future. You know that every season of this year we are turning our attention to one of our theological terms or a biblical term that begins with that prefix, re. And so for the Easter season, we have chosen redeem to guide us, to gather our attention, to garner our focus. And so we will be discussing and exploring what the Bible teaches us about redemption. And you also remember, as I shared with you last week, that our text that's going to guide us on Sunday mornings is Romans 8. And we will spend every Sunday morning now through the rest of the Easter Lenten season in Romans 8. In our daily Bible readings, we'll be reading from the book of Romans and also the Gospel of Luke. This morning, the message is entitled, No Condemnation. And the text is found in the first paragraph of Romans 8. So I would invite you to look at this text with me as we hear these words where Paul has written, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so we condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, when you turn to this beautiful page, Romans 8, we are entering a conversation midstream. Seven pages have already been written. And the eighth page begins with, so now, and so, or therefore, in other words, the Apostle Paul has already made a compelling argument. And now we come to this beautiful, rich page in our Bibles. Romans, page 8. I would tell you that it is a page that is filled with insight. It is dense with theological truth. And it's interesting to me, when you look at Romans 8, it is one of those majestic pages in our Bible. And it's fascinating to me as we'll make our way through it this season, what you'll discover is there's not one imperative in Romans 8. Paul does not give one command. He just offers an incredible, beautiful summary of the good news. Hence, it serves as our text as together we explore redemption Numerous theologians and Bible scholars have unpacked the teachings of Romans 8. There are a number of theologians who have pointed this out. Romans 8 begins with no condemnation. 
it ends with no separation. And there is no defeat in between. So it is one of those high watermarks, if you will, in the New Testament. And so what we're going to do is we're going today, we're going to begin our conversation about redemption around four theological truths that will launch our study together. And I would like to just point them out to you this morning. They will be woven into our conversation throughout the Lenten Easter season. But let me just begin this morning with these theological truths that are found in Romans 8, particularly in the opening paragraph. First of all, the incarnation. What is the teaching or the truth of the incarnation? It is simply this, that God sent his own son, Jesus, to deal with humanity's sin problem. Now, our theme is redeem, and we're going to study redemption. Well, in order to do that, we have to be reminded that redemption at the heart of it is a story. The scripture tells a story. When you open your Bibles and you turn to the very first page, the opening page of the Bible, the book of Genesis chapter one, the Bible tells the story and it opens with great promise. Creation exists. It is the perfect expression of God's will as described in Genesis 1. After all, creation comes into being because of the very breath of God. God created everything as he spoke it into existence. Let there be. And it begins with so much promise. It is a perfect expression of his will. And then he fills creation with life. And creation is teeming with life. Life is everywhere. And then his crowning achievement, he uniquely crafts human beings created in the image of God to be image bearers, to actually reflect the glory of God. The Bible says in Psalm 8, he crowned human beings with his glory. Genesis 1 and 2, two of the most beautiful pages in all of human literature, capturing this incredible story in such a majestic way. Genesis 1 is, 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 no, is noted by scholars as semi-poetic narrative. It's, it's, it's not real poetry, and yet it has a cadence and a rhythm to it. And let there be, and there was evening and morning the first day, and it was good, and let there be, and there was evening and morning the second day, and it was good. And yet it's not pure poetry, it's narrative. It actually tells a story, but it's not pure narrative because of the rhythm and the cadence. It's a beautiful explanation of the creation of all that is. And when Genesis 2 ends, creation is now fully in existence, perfect through God's handiwork, man and woman living in absolute innocence in, in harmony with God, in harmony with one another, and in harmony with their purpose. However, we know that the story continues. Genesis 3 is the story of rebellion. It is the story of separation. Human beings, we decided to go our own way and follow our own path and ultimately, numerous things are introduced into God's creation in Genesis 3. Sin, rebellion, blame, evil, judgment, and death. 
And yet there in that one page, when that story is told, as sad as it is, there is a beacon of hope in Genesis 3, verse 15. The very first promise uttered to human beings there, a prophetic promise comes from none other than God himself. And God says one day that the seed of the woman, he says, his heel will be bruised by the enemy, but he will crush the head of the enemy. And so that prophetic pronouncement of hope is given by God himself in Genesis 3, verse 15. Then we just keep reading. Genesis 4, 5, all the way through Genesis 11. It tells a sordid tale, the struggle of humanity. It culminates on the 11th page of Genesis where human beings unite together and decide they can be like God and they can, they can ascend to a tower that will allow them to be as majestic as he is. And you remember that God's judgment rains down in Genesis 11. And humanity is confused. They're separated. Languages are given. And the barriers are now erected. And here you and I are today living in the reality of that judgment where human beings were separated and their ethnicity begins to take such power in their lives represented by the various languages and barriers have been constructed that has led to so much hurt and so much pain and things like genocide. Even to this very day, as I stand here in this pulpit, we see it being played out on the world stage it's a sad and sordid tale but praise God the Bible doesn't end in Genesis 11 page 12 once again a beacon of hope as the light of God shines in the darkness of judgment and God calls out one man one family Abraham and it is through that family that God has chosen to offer redemption to all families of the world and he blesses Abraham and God says, it's through you, through this one family, I'm going to rescue, I'm going to redeem all the families of the world. And Israel, the children of Abraham, they then hold the promise of redemption. They then become the bearers, the stewards of God's promise for all of humanity. And then we keep reading the story. And as the Bible unfolds, the story unfolds. It's a cosmic drama, yes. But it is also a human drama where the story takes a winding path in the life of Israel as they steward the promises of God and God begins to speak to them. He sends prophets. He sends more promises. He offers his provision. And then we come to what Paul says happened in Romans 8. Wow, what, a, what an incredible turn of events. No one could have really predicted it. But notice what Paul says. Look at verse 3. He says, for what the law was powerless to do, the law being the partial revelation of God, he says it was weakened by flesh. God did by sending his own son. Wow. God decided to take things into his own hands. And you and I, as Christians, many of us have been following the Lord a long time. And we, we nestle up against these majestic truths. And sometimes they lose their grandeur because of their familiarity. I want to invite you this morning to the majesty and the grandeur of the incarnation. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, there you have God. You have the Spirit of God. You have the Word of God. Present. Active. In harmony in community, on display, 
in a way that is unimaginable to us, in a way that we can't quite capture and understand. And yet then God decides that the Word of God would become flesh and dwell among us. That's the miracle of the incarnation. The law is the partial revelation of God. The Son is the full revelation of God. And so now, guess what? Redemption is available to the whole world because God sent his own Son. What an what a beautiful, marvelous miracle. And you and I sometimes, uh, as I said, we've nestled up against it for so long, we have forgotten perhaps the majesty of the fact that God Almighty has taken on human flesh and lived among us and walked on this earth and lived a very real life in real time with real people so that he could redeem all of us. What a gift from our God. And so Paul wants to make sure as he begins this incredible summary of redemption to make sure we all pause and take this in that God sent his own son on our behalf. So once Paul makes that statement, then as you start reading, here's what happens. Theology then takes over. Paul begins this conversation of, of homartology, which is the, the doctrine of sin, of uh, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, of, of soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation. All of these converge now in this densely packed, insight-rich page in our Bibles as Paul wants to make sure we understand exactly what's happened. And so truth begins to cascade down this page like water over Niagara Falls. Paul just comes again and again and again with depth of insight so that you don't miss it as he summarizes the good news. So, what is it that he points out? Well, let me just offer you a, a couple of them real quickly. Once we understand the incarnation, Paul then mentions there is condemnation. There is condemnation. However, God, through his son, Jesus, condemned sin and emptied it of its power. See, that's what Paul says in verse three. Paul says, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son, and look what he says about it. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You see, Jesus came and he lived the perfect life, but he was in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he, he took on life incarnate and walked among people and lived among us but then notice what happened to him. He became a sin offering. And so my sin and the condemnation of my sin was actually placed on Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Look at what this text says. He then condemned sin in the flesh. That word condemn comes out of, it's a forensic term in Paul's world. It comes out of the legal courts. It has the idea of being sentenced and then the execution of that sentence being meted out. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus judged sin and he found it lacking and he condemned it and he emptied it of its power. When Jesus died on the cross, he condemned sin once and for all. So he paid the penalty for our sin when his blood was shed on Calvary's cross, God accepted him as that great lamb of God. And our sacrifice, he sacrificed on our behalf. And our sin now has been forgiven. 
and cleanse. That word is it's, it's like a word you would use in the building industry when you say this building has been condemned. It is now going to be demolished. That's what Jesus has done to sin. He rendered it condemned and then he demolished it. And it no longer has the power it once did. Praise his name. Now, one other word, salvation. It's another theological concept in this text. Salvation. What is that? What well, is only in Christ Jesus that we can experience the victory God provides. Only in Christ. I want you to notice. Look, look, at, look at verse 1. Paul says, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. You see, it's only in Christ Jesus. Because here's the problem. You and I, as sinners, we stand condemned because of our sin. Our separation from God. Here's the bad news. We're born into it. And there's nothing you can do about it. The Bible says that everyone has sinned. All of us have. And you and I were born into it. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He didn't mean that the act of conception was sinful. His point was that this sin nature is carried on from one generation to the next. And so all of us have it. And we're all bent in that direction. We all have the capacity for it, the propensity for it. And those of you that are parents, if you think your child is not a sinner, hang on. You just wait. There's not a mom, there's not a dad that's ever lived who has a child of a certain age who's had this conversation. You know, honey, I'm really worried about our son. Yeah, me too. You know, he just doesn't sin enough. That conversation's never been had. You know why? Because our sons, our daughters, ourselves, we're all sinners. That means our hands are dirty. Everything we put our hands to, we will dirty it. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. In other words, our only hope is Christ Jesus it's in him that I'm forgiven. It's in him that I receive this precious gift of salvation. I've got to be in Christ, and God has to work through Christ so that I can be redeemed. More on that later. But let me say one other thing to you this morning. Here's the application of these deep theological truths. No condemnation. Praise God. The judgment we deserve has been reversed and we've been set free. This morning, I want to offer you some good news. Here's what Jesus has done for you. He has removed the penalty and taken it on himself. And when he took it on, he actually turned around and condemned sin itself and defeated it once and for all. And guess what's happened to me and you? We've been set free. And there is now no condemnation. I don't know how you're experiencing the reality of your spiritual life right now. You may feel condemned. Some people do. You know, guilt is powerful. And guilt can be incredibly unhealthy. I was reading an article the other day about a theologian on, who was uh, offering a summary of Mark Twain's life, reading Mark Twain's writings, listening to people who'd interviewed Mark Twain. And here's what this person said. He said, Mark Twain was riddled with guilt. You read it in his writings. You see some of the interviews at the end of his life. Mark Twain said one time, everyone, every time one of his relatives died, he felt guilty. He felt somehow responsible because the guilt was unwielding in his life. 
and he had not come to grips with this very truth. Here's what God offers you, freedom from guilt. Because guess what? There is therefore now, the Bible says. There is therefore now. Did you see that little word? There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so that that condemnation that you and I have outside of Christ has been lifted from our shoulders and we have been set free. And I'm here to tell you all this morning, that is really good news. You know, I, I hope that you're experiencing the beauty of no condemnation because that's the gift from the Lord Jesus to you. You know, when I read the Bible, which I love to do, I love to read all, all of the Scripture. It's, it's, you know, the, the Bible is this, it's this library of, of so many genres of literature. There's the narrative and the wisdom material and the poetry and the, the prophets and the music and the gospels and the, the, uh, the writings, the epistolary material, the Apostle Paul's apocalyptic material. I mean, it is, it is rich in this beautiful tapestry. You know, when I was younger, when I would preach and read and teach the gospels, I always found myself in the synoptic gospels, primarily Luke. I'm a church historian. Luke's a church historian. I love Luke. Luke and I will be hanging out in heaven if he so wills. I had to mature a little bit to appreciate John. In my younger days, I wasn't really a fan of John. John has this cosmic perspective. John writes in such a different way, and he tells the stories so differently. But as I've matured and gotten older, I've grown to appreciate John. And I find myself drawn to John. It's no mistake that John was given the revelation and not Luke. <laughs> so when you're reading John's gospel, it's fascinated me and it's taken me a while to come to this understanding. You come to John 20 and it feels like it ends. John says, all this has been written so that you might believe in the name of the Son of God. You might find life in him. And you feel like you've got the resurrected Lord. You've got this summary statement powerful. But there's one more page. 21. It's an interesting page. Do you remember what happened? Jesus has died. He's been raised from the dead. He's appeared to the disciples. And now there's this, this period of uncertainty. What's to happen next? What is going to take place? Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go back to what I know. And so sometimes we do that, don't we, in the uncertainty? We, we slip back into what we know, and Simon Peter goes back to Galilee. And, and remember, he and his friends, they fished all night. You remember this story? And caught nothing. And all of a sudden, there's a stranger on the shore. And the stranger says, how you boys doing? Catch anything? I'm kind of adding the Dennis Wiles Alabama paraphrase but here's what he says why don't you cast your nets on the right side of the boat see what happens now you know how fishermen are you got a non-fisherman you know you got the armchair fisherman on the shore but guess what the boys did they threw the nail on the right side of the boat do you remember what happened there were so, so many fish they thought the boat was going to sink, sink and John stands up and says it's the Lord now, I don't know what it is about Simon Peter and perfectly functioning boats. He jumps out of them. I'm not sure why that is, but he just does. He's done it before. Once again, he just jumps out of the boat, swims all the way to the shore. It's early morning. They've been fishing all night. 
The sun's just rising. It's the dawn of the day. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is cooking. Do you remember? And here's what John says. Jesus is there cooking over these hot coals. Now, the last time we saw hot coals in this story, Simon Peter was warming his hands on those hot coals, denying that he'd ever known Jesus. And now here he comes face to face with Jesus, and there are those hot coals again, and there's the Lord offering him something to eat. And he says to him, Peter, you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. Peter denied Jesus. Three times Jesus said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he restores this apostle and redeems him. Jen Wilkin has written this fascinating article for Christianity Today a year or so ago. She asks this question. She says, what happens in rural Palestine at daybreak? What takes place across the land? She said, it seems to me roosters crow early in the morning. She says, you know, the Bible doesn't say it, and John doesn't tell us. She said, but I can't help but wonder. I wonder if while they were standing there by that fire, if there wasn't a rooster crowing in the distance. She entitled her article, Redeeming the Rooster's Crow. Perhaps, what do you think Simon Peter thought of every time he heard a rooster crow for the rest of his life? I want to believe that it was there on that shore of the Sea of Galilee as he stood before the resurrected Lord whose warmed hands offered him a tasty breakfast that he also received this from Jesus. Simon Peter, there is now no condemnation. I hope you hear those same words and you receive that warm embrace of the resurrected Jesus. May it be so. Let's pray together. <clears throat> well, Father, today we are grateful for this good news, for the work of the gospel, and for what only you can do in our lives. And Father, there may be those within the sound of my voice right now who feel condemned and unnecessarily so. And so, Lord, I lift them to you right now, and I pray that they would experience and taste the richness of this truth that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We want to thank you for it. And we pray that truth will wash over our soul this day. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.